Van Ziatera uh, and Patrick Moore for episode 345 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We're amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky and this podcast is for everybody who likes going out under the stars. Stefan was born on the border of Slough, United Kingdom, just off Herschel Street, named for William Herschel and the site of his famous 40-foot long reflecting telescope, which stood outside until uh, just before Stefan came along. It was the world's largest of the time and sponsored by King George III. Uh, Stefan attached a picture of himself standing next to, uh, I guess it's a, it's a replica or the remains of the telescope uh, on a trip to the Royal Greenwich Observatory. So we thank you for that. Pretty cool. And Stefan, it seems like you were destined to be interested in astronomy. Goodness. Yeah, it does sound like that, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> you know, with, with, with Polish, a funny name I've got, it's Polish heritage. So both mum and dad are from Poland originally. And um, so all my all my kind of friends here call me Cop- Copernicus from that side. <laughs> so to have a Cop- Copernicus link and a, and a William Herschel link uh, by almost birth, um, you know, by birth site is is quite an honour. Yeah, and it actually has sort of shaped a lot of my interest in in the hobby. As uh, as I'm happy to talk to you about. How did you first get interested? We'll just kind of start there. Like, what was your kind of first thing that really got you? Uh, uh, thinking about astronomy or hooked on astronomy or what was it just sort of uh, you know knowing that you were growing up in Herschel's backyard <laughs> uh, maybe there was some something in the chemistry there that was happening but uh, interesting listening to you know I'm an avid fan of your podcast been listening for a number of years uh, it's a great show um, and and some of the recent shows that you've uh, that, that I've listened to and some of the guests that you've had I think we're all from the same era and generation because um, they all appear to be sort of they, they, they reply to this in the way that I will in the same way that we're from the we're from the sort of space era you know from the 60s and 70s so Apollo it was a, it was a you know a, a time of adventure uh, from the Apollo missions through to the you know the Voyager probes and um, and and you know watching space shuttles launching and it was an exciting time so you know it was in the news uh tv influenced a lot um you know we we were getting transmissions in the sort of late 70s early 80s from uh cosmos carl sagan and you know i remember sitting down down with my father watching this every sunday night and you know for the for the for the number of episodes that were there and that was fascinating and you know his delivery was was great and then dad got the book, you know, got the hardback, which I've now inherited. It's in front of me here now on, the, on my bookshelf. So, you know, I treasure that from the 70s. And, um, uh, but it was only really um, probably uh, a few years on um, getting into my teens where um, I sort of started thinking a little bit more about, you know, what is it I'm looking at, looking at the sky and understanding stars we'd go camping with school and friends and you know you'd end up by the campfire looking up and and what is it and I couldn't by any means recognize any objects I couldn't read the sky so that was the prompt I thought right let's let's do something about this uh I got a I got a book gifted to me from a neighbor uh Patrick Moore book um on constellations uh back in sort of it was sort of late 70s and that was that was it I was hooked so I'd go out on an evening with my torch and sit out on a bench, no instruments, and just try and try and sort of understand the constellations and some of the star patterns and some of the names and you know Polaris and you know kind of went from there. We lived in Slough at the time or near Windsor, so it was a big town, a big city, and lots of light pollution. So we couldn't really see very much other than the sort of the main 
patterns. And then a few years on, we moved north uh, in, in the UK to more, more sort of countryside where I started to see a lot more detail and the odd good night with, um, with Milky Way visible. Um, and uh, dad would sort of report in saying, oh, there's an eclipse of the moon, you know, so what's an eclipse of the moon? And we'd all go running out and with our binoculars. Um, so he bought actually the first instrument that, that, uh, that we had uh, was a pair of 1970s uh, Jena Zeiss uh, 8x30 binoculars, which I have to this day in their immaculate condition. They're great binoculars, not great for glasses wearers like myself, but, you know, a fabulous way of just sort of looking at the moon and having a little wander about. So that those were the kind of the start for me. And dad was very interested. And sadly, he was from a wartime generation that, he, you know, he wasn't lucky in life to own instruments or study it. So it was just purely a mathematical understanding and interest for him. So he would sit outside and he'd calculate the distance to the moon with his pencil and use trigonometry and, you know, scribble it all down. So it fascinated me that, you know, I'm sure he just looked at the Encyclopedia Britannica on the shelf and, and looked at what the distance average, mean distance to the moon was and tried to impress his son <laughs> rather than calculate it. But, but no, so th those are sort of the deep-rooted uh, background interests. But I mentioned Patrick Moore um, earlier on, and, and Patrick was on TV. Um, he was uh, at the time, um, so in the 70s, he'd already been um, on air for a good 20, 25 years um, on his uh, Sky at Night show, which was a monthly uh, BBC Two late evening show, about half an hour, 40 minutes, and on, on all sorts of topics related to astronomy. And um, I captured a little bit of that with the landing on the moon. And so he was one of the main uh, reporters and, and, and uh, presenters of, of that show, but also linking in with, with the discoveries and what was happening in the space race. So that adventure was getting stronger in me. I wanted to understand more and was eager to watch his TV shows and the book started coming and, um, and, and, and reading a little bit more. Uh, Patrick was also not just visible on, on his show, but being, he was an eccentric character um, who uh, had a fantastic sense of humor and he really quite enjoyed laughing at himself. Um, and he'd dressed up and he'd do silly things and, you know, as an alien or something and appear on a TV kids show. So he was visible, not just for those watching his evening show about astronomy, but he was also visible to the public. So he was an entertainer. And I guess the media exploited that. So we got a lot of Patrick Moore on TV in, in, you know, in that period of time. Um, so we got to sort of uh, university time and I still hadn't really looked through a telescope other than, you know, the odd binocular here or there. Um, and Halley's Comet in 86 was something that, that, you know, hit headlines. I was desperate to kind of find it. Didn't succeed. Sadly, I was in a city and really didn't know what I was looking for. But it kind of got me reading a little bit more about the subject uh, more and more. So when I finished uni, um, I remember coming out to this part of the world. I live in East Anglia, which is um, about an hour's drive from Cambridge, about two hours north of, of London, um, where I started work. And um, I joined, I was about to join an astro um, astronomy group called Norwich Astronomical Society when my father passed away. And I think that was the ultimate catalyst to really get me to go and start exploring this hobby for real. Maybe deep down, I was looking for him somewhere. Um, so I went along to, to the observatory and it was an open day. 
or an open evening, lots of scopes out, lots of interesting people. I was nervous as hell. You know, I, I felt like a, a bit of an imposter. Um, and in the corner ne next to the clubhouse car park, there was some guy there and he had an LX200, a 10-inch. Um, and that's ingrained in my memory because I'd seen it in, in the Sky and Telescope magazines. And I thought, you know, one day I'd love to be able to get one of these. And there it was, first time I'd seen it. And he had, I don't know what eyepiece he had on it, probably because it was a, it was an open evening, probably not his best ocular, but it didn't matter. He was pointing it at Saturn. And I went across and I had a look and I saw the rings of Saturn and that's, that changed my life. <laughs> it really was a, a, a really kind of, a, you know, not only inspiration to move on, but I couldn't believe I was seeing a planet that well and that crisp and that sharp. Um, next to him was a guy with a Teleview Pronto who had just acquired this, uh, this little refracted telescope and he had a 19 millimeter panoptic in that. Remember that too. So I joined the queue. And, um, and, and went along and he was looking at, I think it was, a, it may have been the double cluster in Perseus and it was magnificent. It was three-dimensional and it, it, it was clearer and sharper than the optics that I was seeing sat in. Uh, but it didn't matter to me. It didn't matter to me on, uh, at all how clear it was. It was the fact that suddenly I could see more than I'd ever seen before and I just wanted more. So I, I went straight into the clubhouse. I, I got my checkbook out. I wrote an annual subscription fee to, to join and, and became a, a regular weekly uh, visitor to the observatory with no kit. But then suddenly, you know, I'd seen the views through a telescope and I wanted a telescope. And everyone kept saying, don't do it, don't do it. You know, go binoculars, go binoculars. <laughs> I thought, no, but I'm not going to see Saturn, you know, unless it's, you know, 20 times magnification or something. And then I'll need a tripod the size of my car and, so um, I, I did listen to their advice. I, I still had my little 8x30s ice that, that, that I'd inherited from dad. Um, but I, I, I kind of had a hankering for a refractor. Um, I'd seen the Teleview, the 101, um, which was my dream. Couldn't really afford one at the time. So I thought, well, I'll tell you what, let's, let's go down the binocular route. Let's learn a little bit more about the night sky. There were plenty of telescopes at the observatory that through, through members, but also the equipment that was there. And, and everyone was quite happy to, you know, to, to allow you views through those instruments. So I started reading, reading, and I, I came across uh, some, some magazine blog, because in those days, I don't think we were kind of doing it the way we are now and getting access to information like on cloudy nights. And, and the big, big noise at the time was get yourself some Fujinon 10 by 70s. It was either 10 by 70s or the, the, the slightly larger magnification. I can't remember um, what they were, but I thought, no, I wanted the wider view. I wanted something that I could reasonably handhold. Um, that didn't work when they arrived. Uh, but anyway, so I ordered them and there was a great exchange rate um, between pounds and US dollars. And, and I, I ended up buying a pair of those Fujinons from a, a very well-known uh, New York camera outlet who very kindly sent it, you know, we imported it into the UK and did what needed to be done. And, and, and the box arrived some three or four days later, and it was an enormous box. And I remember opening this thing and these binoculars just kept coming out of the box. They were huge. <laughs> and, and compared to my eight by thirties, which were, you know, they were handheld one hand sort of thing. I very quickly realized that, that actually I, I really wasn't going to be able to hold these for very long and I needed a solution. So I I got my back editions of Sky and Telescope out and little, remember the adverts at the back, they had these little kind of little snippets from 
all the states in the US and, and, and some of the dealers. And, and I, what caught me was this little, little image. There's a little kind of photograph or a picture of a, of a parallelogram mount mm. um, from a company uh, in those days called uh, Virgo Astronomics. We're talking 1996, 97, uh, around about that time. So I reached out, I sent a fax <laughs> to, uh, to Lucy Albert, who was the owner of, uh, of that company. And um, we ping-ponged a little bit and uh, we made an agreement and I ordered this uh, parallel parallelogram mount, which I thought was a fabulous idea. This thing came hurtling over from the US. And uh, in the meantime, Lucy had sent me a, a letter in the post with a Polaroid, what looked like a Polaroid photograph of Hale-Bopp, of the comet Hale-Bopp in 90, early 97. And it was... A Polaroid picture, so it wasn't going to be, you know, high res, lots of detail. But nevertheless, there was this tiny little smudge, and it was a comet, and it was from the US, and it was destined to be the next best thing. So um, these binoculars started arriving, and the and the, the they arrived, and the parallelogram mount came just at the right time to view Hale-Bopp. And as you guys know, it was just a spectacle, and it was really the launch of my interest at the observatory, and you know, with my friends there. Um, so I took a picture. I took a picture from the UK and sent it back to Lucy uh, with with my old uh, SLR camera, and uh, you know developed the film, but forgot to pick up the film from the developers. Um, work got ahead of me, something, and I was passing by the chemist where where the developing was, and I suddenly realised that you know three months ago I'd put this film in. Uh, so I walked in and I got mobbed. They said, "We thought you were never going to come back." He said, "Your pictures, they're great." And I, I've never taken an astro picture in my life. And, uh, you know, I just sort of read somewhere that, you know, high ASA and Fujifilm 400 ASA film or something and stick it on a thousand ASA and, you know, and off you go, expose it. And it just kind of worked out. But what I didn't realize is that in the foreground, I had silhouetted the parallelogram mount with those binoculars on top with Hale-Bopp in the background. So that's perfect to Lucy. <laughs> so Lucy then rang me when she received it. She said, oh, can I please use this on, you know, my mugs and my, I'm going to be doing some astronomy show. And can I, uh, you know, I'll, 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 I'll pay you for the image or I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do something. So I said, no, no, you keep it. And uh, we came to some arrangement. And so she's got a copy. I've got another different angle on it. And um, so that's as far as my astrophotography went because <laughs> then the visual thing took over and I had, I then had an international assignment with work. Uh, I worked for a big uh, multinational company and they sent me to Poland uh, because of my heritage. I speak the language and they wanted some commercial setup in, in Poland. So I came back from there um, and took advantage of uh, the, the benefit of working overseas and headed straight for the shop to find a, a Teleview 101. And there was one, actually a, a used one. It was a couple of years old, but it, it had hardly been touched. It was immaculate. So I ended up buying that uh, with the um, with the accessories and with the Sky Tour uh, and the Caddy Sess and everything. So it had the digital setting circles. So that was my first venture into into that. It was more push and point rather than anything electronic, and that was remarkable. Suddenly I had a high quality refractor um, and needed to get some light pieces. So I that that was my entry into cloudy nights, and um, there was a. I think Astro Astro ads as well in the US, and and we've got an equivalent here in the UK as well. That that uh, the uh, the UK buy and sell site. So I, I started arming myself with uh, nicer eyepieces. Took my time, try to think ahead. So not just buy for the reflector and the refractor, but maybe one day I would have that 
Schmidt Cassegrain or maybe a Dob, um, something that I could then not have to rebuy or rethink, listen to Al Nagler's advice on IPs buying and, you know, the magnifications, et cetera. And that was quite useful, I remember. Um, and then one day <laughs> there was a, 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 a subscribing to a, a UK magazine and there was a closing down sale at a, at a relatively local um, astronomy shop. And I wanted to buy a book and maybe get a, a smaller telescope for our eldest son, who was, you know, was quite young at the time. I thought I'll maybe get him a little portable thing and as an excuse for me to then card around sites when I didn't want to take the teleview. So I, I went along to the to to you know for in ready for opening just to make sure I got the good deal. And on his um, on the mezzanine floor where he had his showroom, he had a whole bunch of eight uh, eight inch uh, Celestron. SCTs uh, for sale at knockdown closing prices. So um, I, I approached the guy who was a well-known retailer here in the UK, and I said, "You wouldn't happen to have a, an 11-inch version of that?" And uh, and he said, "No, but I got a nine and a quarter." So I said, "I'll have it without even asking him the price." So with legendary optics, flat field, and you know that was the ultimate thing. So I came home. I went shopping for a book, and I came back with a telescope, which took a lot of explaining at home. Uh, I have to say. So that was great fun. And that became sort of my staple instrument in outreach in future life, because I felt that this was not only here in the UK, but my subsequent trips to the Middle East and, and uh, astronomy shows in the desert. Um, the Schmidt was um, portable enough to get me where I wanted to be. Uh, but it had sufficient light grasp also to, you know, to really take advantage of some, some deep sky objects and show people galaxies and, uh, and things up that they possibly wouldn't uh, necessarily find easy to see in, in other instruments. The reality was that most of the outreach was, was planets and moon anyway, but those that wanted to see a little bit more, um, you know, I had the instrument that I could just sort of GPS and go to quite quickly. And I love it. Um, had a few traumas with it, with electronic failures, and um, you know the date function sort of collapsed at one point. But Celestron did the nice thing, and they they updated it for me and got a new hand pedal. So, so really, those were the sort of two instruments. But I still, deep down, really, really kind of wanted to go down the route of big optics, you know, big light bucket. You know, I'd seen I'd seen people's twenty-two inch uh, reflectors before um, in the desert, and and. You know, you, you you reach sort of a different level of magnitude. It goes much much deeper, and you know, you, you're having to filter down planets. It, it is that much light grasp, and I quite like the idea of having maybe the three instruments and then vary the type of observing that I want to do. And um, so it was around 20, 2010, 2011, something like this. Um, I got my second international assignment uh, to the Middle East with my company to, to set up a, a sales operation uh, out there. And, but I didn't know which way to go. So I, I was in touch with David Kriege and, you know, I was obsessed about obsession. It's going to be an 18 inch classic and, and, and Pyrex mirrors were running out and glass. And so, you know, I was beginning to panic a little bit and, and we'd planned a trip, a family trip from the Middle East to Australia uh, to visit my uncle, um, who was my father's um, younger brother. And we were halfway to Australia from the UK already, so we thought that would have been a great opportunity. And I put a, I put a post out on Cloudy Nights, just like, I'm interested in, you know, this, this telescope, this obsession, you know, these were my questions. And, 
And I got a, I got one of those fantastic replies, not a one-line answer, but I got paragraphs from this guy with the detail and, you know, pros and cons and things to look out for and additional accessories and where to go from there. And I read the, I read this wonderful response and right at the bottom, he'd signed it, John, uh, New South Wales, Australia. And I thought, oh, we're, we're just about going to Australia. So I reached out and I said, you know, are you, you know, how far are you from Sydney? And uh, he said, well, I'm about two hours drive and continued asking the questions. And he was four minutes drive away from where my uncle lived. So we were destined to meet. So I arranged a meeting um, with him. Uh, he welcomed me to his home. He had an 18-inch obsession, which was the whole start of the conversation in his garage. Um, we opened the garage door and there it was. It's glory. It's a lot bigger than I thought it would be, I have to say. And, and then... He said, well, we've got some other instruments here. So we opened another three garages. And he, he's, he's very, um, this particular guy is quite influential in the Auscamp, um, you know, inviting lots of guests to Australia to view Southern Hemisphere objects. Uh, so he's got his own instruments, but he's also a custodian of a lot of others for the club that he then subsequently runs or helps to run. And, uh, and there were these other instruments in there that were exquisite. I mean, they were smaller, larger, all based on that trust Dobsonian design, uh, kind of obsession copies, if you like, but made of different wood and with lots of added accessories and bells and whistles. So you know, I said, what's that? And he said, oh, we've got, a, we've got a guy here in Australia who you know brought a couple of these in and made a few for friends. And he's got a thriving business now where he makes these telescopes. And it's um, SDM telescope size, doesn't matter. And uh, by the time we left Australia, um, I'd been in touch with him and placed my order for, for an 18-inch. Um, and it took him a year. I was really lucky because, um, I mean, I think now Peter has got, I think, a waiting list of a number of years. Um, at aged, he's a, he's, a, he's a senior gentleman, let's put it, uh, but he's got a lot of telescopes on order. And I think he's only made about 100 or so um, since he started some getting on for 15, 20 years now, he's been building these. So different business models to the obsessions where they, you know, four or 500 a year versus maybe one or two a year. So uh, the, the, the build, perhaps a bit like the Tita telescopes from, uh, you know, in the US, you know, high quality cabinet making, etc. So anyway, I ordered this thing and he built it and he shipped it out to Dubai and I've named it Zeus after my dad. That was his pseudonym in World War II. So that's my kind of homage to my dad, um, who never got to look through a telescope ever, but was my, my, my kind of guiding light. Um, and Zeus obviously has other um, uh, Greek um, mythological connotations, uh, God of Gods and Jupiter, etc. So there's a little bit of a link there. And, and Peter Reed, um, you know, he personalizes the scope for you. So there's a nice plaque on the side to, to show its name. But it was uh, tremendous. And certainly from the climbs of the Middle East, we were based um, on the outskirts of Dubai for about eight years. Um, and I'd wheel this thing into my four-wheel drive and off I'd go into the desert. Not when it's blowing a hoolie, I have to say. Um, but, you know, when the conditions were right, um, to have a, a show with people, even just privately with friends or myself, or doing outreach, um, the, the, the queues were substantial, um, I've got to say. Um, this was, uh, was part of a club. It was part of Dubai Astronomy uh, Group. Um, we were probably a group of about 10 people um, who were involved in creating some outreach for locals. Um, and, and 
also carrying on one of, um, go back to Patrick Moore, uh, one of Patrick's wishes is to spread the, um, spread the hobby, spread the science um, in outreach, because that's really what he wanted to do. And he wanted us, a handful of people who, who knew him, to continue what he'd started. So I felt, I felt obliged to, to follow that. Um, so we, we did a lot of sort of shows in the desert and a lot of people would come along and, you know, probably 20, 30 people on, a, on an evening. Um, but then we had um, a surprise visitor. We had a surprise visitor in, in a meteor shower that had never been uh, witnessed by, uh, uh, certainly not in living times. Um, and uh, this was in April. I think I've written it down somewhere, but I can't remember. There was Camelia Pard, Dallas meteor shower, if I'm not mistaken. And it was due to uh, go through, pass through Dubai first, or that part of the world first, in terms of its position. So there were three of us, a school teacher, but, but all three of us are Brits, um, one Scottish school teacher, science teacher, and a, a business owner out there. We got together, we thought, how can we bring this meteor shower to the public? So we got a Facebook page together, and one of us, who's a little bit more kind of uh, um, TV uh, aesthetically pleasing, wasn't me, it was the other guy. I went on and talked about it, and there was a radio thing, and we got the hotel to get a, a, a space available for, you know, a number of cars coming down to use their facilities. And, you know, we got close to the day. It was planned maybe a month in advance. And it came to the evening and we had, we estimated 8,000 people turned up. Wow. It was, I, 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 <laughs> I jokingly refer to it as a Justin Bieber concert um, <laughs> with, without the light. It was, it, it was insane. We, we were manning uh, four or five telescopes in the grounds of the hotel with the lights down from eight in the evening till six in the morning, um, nonstop. I mean, our batteries were failing. We were, we were dehydrated. People were bringing strengths. We, the, the, there were queues waiting to get to the hotel. People abandoned their cars and just camped in the desert to look at the spectacle. Sadly, there were not many meteor shout not many meteors to be seen but reviews of jupiter and saturn at the time and so people were kind of getting a good eye full of that and we definitely made our mark on on the region when it comes to um open reach so there's a lot of interest so the three of us um we were gifted breakfast by the hotel because the guests arriving had cleaned them out of all the food and beverage completely so we had a we had a little bit of a whatever it was left over in the, in the morning and sort of said well what just happened how can we continue to do this? Um, so long story short, uh, we managed to get uh, alongside a, uh, an events company uh, with some royal connections uh, to use royal land. And um, we, we, we were doing public outreach for, for VIPs, for guests. Uh, so that was, that was a tremendous experience because you're not only meeting some great people, but you're in a part of the world where the night sky is pretty much guaranteed to be quite good every night uh, almost you know so yeah, I was statistically gonna, i was gonna ask Stefan, how how were the skies there i remember i did a remote event with a group um from that region once uh, a couple of years before the pandemic and i remember they were showing me you know basically what the sky looked like out in the desert there and it was just almost unimaginable it was so so dark and how far south? You could probably see a little bit further south from there, I imagine, than uh, than from where you are in the UK. Yeah, great, great question. And 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 you know, to catch the first bit, it was dark. Um, 
I, I've, I've been to darker sites, but the, the, the quality of the sky, the seeing and the transparency was so good, it actually illuminated the sky, which made it look less dark, if that makes oh, wow. any sense. <laughs> but it was horizon to horizon. We're talking, uh, I, I was based around um, probably about four hours out of Dubai, uh, due south to, towards the Saudi border, uh, and about two and a half hours south of Abu Dhabi, it's a straight road which actually goes through the, um, uh, uh, the tropic, 23 and a half degrees. So you know, Dubai's at 25, I think. So yeah, you're a bit further around the corner to see further south, which is um, r- remarkable. Um, I'll, I'll come back to a point, actually, in terms of the first thing that I saw in my telescope from Dubai, because that was a, it was a specific thing I was interested in seeing. But the sky, the sky in the desert is that the, the desert has a pulse. Um, you know, it's alive literally um and if you're lucky you know you get to a certain time of the day and everything settles down there's less wind and it depends on the time of the year and the temperature but in the winter you're going to tell me you really like the desert because it's clean any anyway sorry reference to lawrence of arabia (laughs) (laughs) yeah well it's it's not far from where it all originated from down there in yemen but um yeah yeah it's um no, it's just a remarkable place, and, and there, there weren't many times when I was lucky enough to be out there uh, doing these shows or just looking that it wasn't crystal. So I yeah. would say Bortle probably two, kind of that kind of area. But um, and and when you're looking at the constellations, you'd see some of the fainter stars that you wouldn't generally see from Europe, um, even with a star chart or you know naked eye. So that was remarkable. But g- going back to your last point. Um, around the corner, seeing a bit further south. Um, when uh, Peter Reed uh, made my scope, my 18-inch, one of the things that he tested it on was a Megan Centauri from Australia. Oh, yeah. So I just, I thought it would be really cool. I thought, wouldn't it be cool to see a Megan Centauri and then report back to Peter and saying first and last objects spotted uh, in the other uh, reverse order. Uh, I had to, it was probably at about five degrees off horizontal, so I've had a friend of mine who was just helping me guide the telescope down because it had hit its limits and it wouldn't go any further without, you know, shutting down the electronics. So I manually guided it down without it touching anything, but I saw it. It was there and nice. it was it was the most remarkable globular I've ever seen. It filled the whole view. So, yeah, so that was quite cool. All right. Let's uh, let's go on and chat about uh, Sir Patrick Moore. Can you, can you tell us? Well, Patrick... Uh, He's, uh, he's sadly no longer with us, as, as we know, but he's um, a gentleman who um, was famous for being the, the presenter of The Sky at Night, which was up to the point where he passed away. It was the longest-running TV show by, uh, by a single person uh, in history. I think it ran for, you know, 50-odd years, uh, 57 years. Um, Sky at Night was a, a once-a-month program on the BBC, you know, he had personal relationship with Armstrong and Aldrin, um, many of the other um, astronauts, as well as other famous scientists. Um, so he was well known. How did I get to know of him? Well, we talked about the books. We talked about um, uh, the shows that I watched. But one fine, um, one fine afternoon, he made a visit to the Norwich Astronomical Society that I joined back in the mid, uh, mid-90s with the BAA, with the crew. And so we had to spruce up the site and, you know, and he came along and there was a lecture and a talk and then he toured the site and, and I got some private time with him. And um, I'm just, I don't know for the benefit of that, that's the picture of 
he and he and I, going back a look a, a little bit younger then, I can share this electronically <laughs> with you. Yeah. That's the first time I met him personally. Um and um, you know, just found him a, a really nice guy, um, always had time for people. Um mentioned his sense of humor, his knowledge uh, on, on all matters astronomical uh, was, was vast, but his specialty was the moon. His real passion was the moon. Um, he wrote a lot of books. So he, he classified himself as not a, an astronomer, but as an amateur and an, as an author. Uh, that, that's how he, he described himself. Uh, main, main topics were the moon. But he, there were there were annuals, there were periodicals uh, for the BAA. He contributed. He, he also sat as president of the uh, of, of of the BAA and the lunar section as well. So um, he came along. Uh, we chatted about uh, you know his interest in in, in astronomy. Uh, I was a bit awestruck uh, by him because he, he he was a celebrity, um, and. And then I, I didn't get to catch up with him for another couple of years. But then through um, a gentleman called me up uh, with work and he said, look, I've got some work very close to Celsi, the south coast where Patrick lives. And I know him personally. Would you like to come along? Um, he's throwing a luncheon. Uh, do you want to come and meet him? So, of course, I said yes. And uh, so down we trotted. And um, we, you know, Patrick had about sort of 20 people in his house, farthings. Um, which until quite recently, I thought Farthings, the home where he lived, that's what it was called. It's actually Far Things. It's a play on words. It's things that are oh. a long way away. So <laughs> I thought it, I thought because it he wasn't he didn't have two like pennies to rub together kind of thing. That's exactly <laughs> what I thought. Or I thought because he was such an old guy that it was a bicycle with a big back wheel, you know. Um, <laughs> but no, it's it's Far Things uh, written together. So it was just a show of his humor. Um, but it was this beautiful cottage um, in Selsey, uh, which is on the south coast of England, uh, with a thatched roof and uh, with, uh, with you know with uh, with lots of little rooms and quite a plot of land with all these outbuildings. Where I then later discovered he housed a lot of telescopes. So I got a tour of the site, which was fantastic. Um, the most impressive for me was the fullerscope, uh, which was the fifteen. I think it was fifteen and a half inch. Um, maybe 15 inch, I can't remember exactly, uh, reflector that was, was in a... It was in a strange building, I, I think I recall. I've seen a lot of videos of it. It looks like almost like a greenhouse um, yeah. with windows around it. Yeah, very I, interesting. I, I believe, I think it was an oil drum. I think it was oh. like an oil oil container or something of that nature. Um, and, and it had just been cut and adapted into an observatory. Very efficient, huge building. I mean, you could probably, you know, the, the, the reflector, 15-inch reflector is a, a decent-sized instrument. <laughs> but you'd go in there and, you know, we'd, we'd probably be about 15, 20 people and you still had elbow room. So it was, a, it was a big spot and would certainly take a larger instrument. Um, so that was quite cool. I never looked through it because um, it was undergoing at the time some renovation work. So it was there on display, but the optics were out. Uh, the tube was there. But he had a runoff shed, a runoff roof shed. He had um, he had a, a number of uh, reflecting uh, refracting telescopes in his study, uh, kind of older brass tube ones, which were you know, working instruments, not decorative ones that, that he had from from his younger days. Um, and then entered into his library, which was just it was his most incredible uh, place because he had so it was the, stacked absolutely I stacked ask, books. 
I got to ask you a little bit more about those observatories because one of his famous ones is sort of that split um, building design, though building it's not like a building with for the uh, I think he did like a twelve inch reflector on a yeah. yoke or a, a yoke mount of sorts. It looks like a giant version of the Teleview Gibraltar, basically, and the building would just separate in two on runners and and then you know the the telescope would be in the middle and he had a set of stairs to kind of go up and down to reach uh, higher altitudes did, yeah, did you get a was, chance to look at that again that was uh, a lot of his uh, at the time um he he the time that i met him and i was at his house he was already an aging gentleman so he was probably approaching his 80s if not already 80 uh from memory and so the instruments weren't getting the use that they did in his earlier days. So a lot of them had gone into sort of ill repair and needed a lot of care and maintenance. So unfortunately, I didn't get to see through any of his instruments because they just weren't, they, they, they weren't really adequate for, for any visual observing. But they were there. But I remember the instrument and the, and the runoff shed that you're talking about because it was quite relatively close to his main house. It was probably his closest one if you come out the sort of side door. Um, and it was in a sort of, I can only describe as a greenhouse. So it had glass windows, um, you, you know, with some sort of little curtain runners that he would close just to keep sort of hmm. a stray light away when he was using it. But that particular instrument, I believe he did a lot of work um, um, mapping the moon. Mapping, so he did. Yeah, a, that's the one yeah. I remember him talking about. Yeah. So he did, he did a lot of uh, a lot of that. Um, and, and the work that he did was um, during the space race, he was actually sort of supplying uh, uh, lunar imagery, sketching imagery to both NASA and also to to Russia. So, you know, he wasn't biased in any way. He was just supplying that kind of detail. Um, I, I on one visit. Uh, this first visit turned into many more, um, thankfully. Um, and, and, you know, we, we, we became good friends. So I knew him for uh, getting on for about 15 years um, on and off. And um, uh, on, on, uh, on one uh, particular visit, there was a, um, it was usually linked to either the filming of Sky at Night, one of the episodes, because he couldn't get to London anymore. He was getting frail to speak. And, uh, you know, they were, BBC would come and do all the recording there on the spot in his, in his study. Um, and he was giving away a couple of the uh, printed moon maps that he'd made, uh, but he'd signed them. And um, and on one of uh, one of the visits, which was the fiftieth anniversary of the Sky at Night, that was a splendid thing. BBC put on a you know a couple of marquees in the garden. Um, you know, several hundred people attending. Some of them quite famous, um, and and there was a moon map there, sort of a blown up version of it that everyone could sign. So, um, so you know, I added my little scribble to it, and then took a. That was a day where digital cameras were in existence. I had a really kind of a three megapixel something or other. So I stood on a on a on a chair and took a picture of this thing. So somewhere in my archive, I've got got a copy of all those signatures that that, that you can zoom in on. Um, you know, we we really did become good friends, and you know, privately, and it wasn't just when the filming started. You know, family came around, we had supper together, and um, got to know him as a person as well as the celebrity. And there was a bit of an on-off switch between the two. He was always an eccentric, uh, you know, I think that was the generation, um, the monocle, uh, which was, you know, as far as I know, was for real medical reasons. You know, he, his you know, two eyes were not quite uh, spliced together correctly. So he compensated for that, but that made the character and he played on that. So he knew how to do the celebrity thing. And um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, he's one of the sort of pioneers of, of, of early television, uh, he, he, you know, with, with broadcast, et cetera. 
But um, but yeah, he he knew how to um, he knew how to play the crowd, definitely. Um, getting to know the inner Patrick was uh, was a real privilege. Um, one example was uh, uh, I, I got a call um, from from uh, the BBC where they were uh, about to film the Transit of Venus um, event um, back in two thousand and four. I th- it was a three way. TV show based one at um, Greenwich um, at the Meridian at the observatory there one at Patrick's place uh, which was the sort of the, the core of the, the the sky at night and one up in Leeds in, in Yorkshire um, which was the home of Jeremiah Horrocks who was the first to predict that's right he, he projected of, it through a curtain on against his wall yeah yeah Absolutely. So this was a three-way kind of a, a, a TV thing, which was fascinating, and I was really lucky to to be invited along to the filming of that, and to the to the not just the filming, but just just to participate and experience the whole event. And we had um, unusually a beautiful, beautiful day, uh, summer's day. It was warm. It was sunny. It was hot, and um, and I got to spend quite a bit of time with uh, Patrick privately in his garden, sort of reminiscing about his old shows and some of the people that he'd met and, um, and, and his, his favorite producers uh, who, you know, he'd traveled the world and uh, visited some of the observatories that he did his shows uh, around. So that was special. Uh, that will never leave me. And um, it was only a few years later that we, uh, he had a, it was a, a, another anniversary. I think it was his 777th show, which tied in with his birthday. Um, and this was uh, being uh, uh, hosted again at, uh, at Far Things um, just before we left for the Middle East. So I went along and uh, you know, a, lot of, a lot of people there, some very interesting characters. And, and uh, you know, kind of said cheerio to him um, in a way. And, and, you know, he said, oh, where are you off to? And I said, I'm off to the Middle East. And he said, I've got a friend in Abu Dhabi. And he opened his drawer at his desk next to his type, famous typewriter. And he gave me this piece of paper. And on it was written a telephone number with his friend. And he said, when you go, make sure you contact this person. So he had contacts. He had influence, and, uh, you know, beyond the, beyond the shores. Um, so, which I did. And uh, sadly, uh, about 18 months down the line, uh, I got a call and they said that, you know, we've, we've lost Patrick. And that, that was, you know, a sad day. Um, it, was a, it was a happy day that, you know, he wasn't in, in any way in pain. Uh, he struggled in his life a little towards the end, but it was kind of end of an era. And um, we had a mission to continue some of his work and to make sure that we showed children and students the night sky. And so it goes back to right at the beginning, what I said is I, I love visual I love showing people through the telescope. Um, it's, it's, it's kind of not only a mission uh, to carry on what Patrick did, but it's a genuine interest. You know, it's fabulous, our hobby, isn't it? It really is. One of the things that I really liked about Farthings was on, on the roof, he had um, like one of those weather vanes or wind direction yeah. pointers, and it had like a, like a little person with a, with a telescope. And I, I, I so want one of those still. Actually, but now you say it, I've, I'd completely forgotten about that, and and I may even have a picture of it somewhere. I, I because I knew well, I'd him love to see. I, I, I tried to find one when we were doing this. I tried to find a, a picture of it, but I but I couldn't. But I remember because uh, I used to watch um, this guy at night when uh, we're at my grandmother's, and I was a small child, and I, I remember it like the camera would sometimes pan out from that to uh patrick you know of course it'd be like totally cloudy and then you'd be saying <laughs> something to the effect of well 
we've we've got no skies here tonight kind of thing and you let's know cloud it out no chance yep. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah exactly exactly no that so. weather vane that it's i do remember it now you mentioned it chris it's it i do recall it and i've got it in my mind's eye um and it was there on top of his thatched roof and um uh, a lot of houses here do have weather vanes you know oh yeah brits are yeah. kind of sometimes a bit obsessed about the weather because we get an awful lot of it yeah. Um, but but you can you can buy these things. Uh, our next door neighbour has got one with a, um, I think a horse and cart or something or other yeah. which collects them. Yeah. So I'll yeah. keep an eye out for you. And I'll send you some images of us. Yeah, sure. And if you can if you could uh, you know sort of nip it, uh, that'd be great too. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think they'll let me in because it's now owned by somebody else. Uh, there's a plaque now to, to, that that yeah. um, that was unveiled by Brian May um, yeah. quite recently to say that, you know, in honor of Patrick, but it's now owned by somebody and I don't think they'd appreciate me climbing their roof oh, okay. and stealing their weather mains. <laughs> so, <laughs> so is, is any of the uh, astronomical uh, equipment in that still, there? I remember there was some talk at one point in time, I think I remember hearing Brian May speak about possibly trying to turn it into some sort of museum or something <laughs> to that effect, or uh, yeah. what's happened to all the library books and equipment, if, if not there. Yeah, so again, another another really good question. It was um, it was it got a little bit controversial um, after Patrick passed away, and there was a lot of inaccurate, bad press um, around the whole thing. Uh, it was a bit distasteful, uh, but the reality is is that um, uh, the house was in trust, and it needed to be uh, let's just say correctly catalogued and 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 handled. So and and. Uh, Brian May did a fantastic job with a number of other people to ensure that not only some of the possessions, uh, but some of the very valuable things in there that he had, uh, mm. value not in monetary terms, but value in terms of you know the meaning of things and, and, and that, that, that type of thing, went to the right place. So uh, there, I believe there is a local astronomical society close to where Patrick lived, that he was associated with. I know that they received, uh, they, there's some affiliation as well with the Science Museum in London that they have. So they received um, quite a, a number of, uh, of the instruments and some of the possessions and the books. Um, some things were gifted, uh, some things went to charity, and a number of things were auctioned. And uh, I was aware of the auction. I didn't bid for anything. For me, the memory's enough. Um, I didn't even go crazy with photographs when I was there because it's, you don't go to your friend's house and take a load of pictures of, you know, of them or their possessions, I guess. But um, the memory was enough. So my understanding is that things that were important are in the right place uh, for the right reasons. And some of them are accessible and on display. It's a case of just kind of having a bit of a dig around and seeing specifically. I think the telescope you referred to earlier, Chris, is, uh, is one of those things that you can go and see. I know the fuller scope was being restored. There was some ping pong on cloudy nights around this a little while ago, and I contributed to that. Um, so I think there was some work going on in terms of bringing that back to life and having it as potentially a working uh, um, you know, example um, for the public. So no, that's, that's a good thing. Um, and the house is remains where it is, and, and I think it's been respectfully. It's a listed building, I'm guessing, because it's quite an old property, and it's uh, we you know, we're, we're custodians of some of these properties during our life. So whoever's got it now will be doing the same for the next generation. And yeah. it looks great from the pictures I've seen, certainly in the press. Did you get to meet Patrick's cats? That's my question. <laughs> Ptolemy, yeah. Well, he had a few, but yeah, Ptolemy. <laughs> Ptolemy was, uh, yes, a uh, lovely cat, black and white with a little white kind of collar thing, or black cat with a collar. 
Um, there, there was an interesting sign um, I remember now that you mentioned. So you'd park the car down the side of the house and you'd, there, there really wasn't a front door. It was more of a sort of a side door to the house. And it was a sort of a lean-to glass construction, which um, housed a telescope from memory. And then there'd be sort of the main door. You'd go into this area, you'd close the door behind you, then go into the main house. But there was a sign on the door. And the sign said something like, I can't remember the exact wording, but it was, uh, you know, this is, um, this is like a vacuum. <laughs> the space you're in is a vacuum. Please make sure you close all doors before opening into the house so the cat doesn't leave. <laughs> so he was really, he was really, um, he loved his animal um, and, you know, played a big part of his life. And I think he had some charity work for, 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 for animals as well. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, cats were a big thing for him and his mum, I think, as well in the past. So, yeah, I did meet Ptolemy um, on one occasion, I think. Um, I'm not sure it was a he or a she, but Ptolemy um, was, I'm guessing it's a he, was asleep on the typewriter. And he had mm -hmm. a little spot next to the desk. It was like um, a little plinth and there was a cushion and, and he kind of he was always there asleep or you know, being part of it. Um, he wouldn't allow him in the next room where he had his mini grand piano and his uh, he had his glockenspiel like a xylophone thing. Yeah, that was uh, strictly no go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so maybe we can uh, just talk a little bit about the Caldwell list before we conclude. How does that sound? You know, I listened to a few shows back, and uh, what prompted us to kind of get in touch, I guess, um, was the um, what, what what struck me. What I meant to say is what what struck me as how much uh, negativity there was around the Cold War list. And, and I really had not heard that before um, from any point of view. So I, I wanted to understand that a little bit more. Um, so one of your guests, um, you know, Alistair, I was listening to Alistair, great show. You know, I was really into it. And, and, you know, it was about lists, I believe. And I'm trying to get myself a bit organized now. I'm sort of a little bit less work in my life to, to kind of, go about life and, and list things and do things in a sort of a, a, you know, structured way. So I was taking notes and, and he got to, to the end of the show and he was quite um, vocal and quite, um, uh, you know, he had his opinions on, on the Cold War list. And I, I, I was quite surprised because I'd not really heard that before. So what it prompted me to do is it prompted me to have a little bit of a dig and to try to understand why there is this, what I classified as negativity. So the first thing to call was, well, um, where did it all emanate from? Um, I knew Patrick, obviously, and I knew that he created it, and I'd had discussions with him. But the Corval objects were already up running by the time I met him and knew him personally. So this was a few years before then. But I, I, I recalled the, um, the story that it, it all kind of happened through Sky and Telescope. Um, so I dropped Sky and Telescope a note saying, I'm, I'm trying to get hold of a back copy. Can't seem to be able to do it. Can you help me? And they, they, they very kindly wrote back and they said, look, you know, don't copy, don't send, don't do anything. You know, for your research purposes, here's, here's the article that you're looking for. So I read it and I, and I, I was quite frankly, I was quite shocked at the, the opening few paragraphs because they appeared to be a statement from Patrick announcing uh, the validity or the rationale behind producing these Corwell objects, uh, this, this, this list. And, and some of it did appear, as I read it, to be quite um, arrogant, may I say, something that it didn't ring true. It didn't, what I was reading didn't kind of 
to me, balance with the person that I knew. So I reread it a couple of times. I read a couple of others. I've got the Caldwell Objects, the Deep Sky Companions, uh, wonderful book, Stephen James O'Meara with, with some of his others. And so I kind of dived into that and the opening, and it was a slightly different intro. Perhaps it was done, uh, it was clearly done after the event, so maybe it had refined a little bit. And, and, and also with Martin Mobley, who I also met through Patrick, and he'd also written a, bu- a book about this, and he was quite uh, you know, explanatory in his preface and, and, and entry. So anyway, that was kind of my take. And, and I thought, right, is this really something that uh, was done in the style that was presented in that opening statement of Sky and Telescope? And in my view, it's not. I think it's a misinterpretation, my personal view on this. I think what this is, is Patrick, um, okay, let me just, just, just sort of step back and rewind a, a little bit. Um, in my early days of astronomy, we'd look at, we'd start with a Messier catalogue and we'd have a little look around and we'd say, well, why didn't Messier pick that up? You know, it, it might be such an obvious object that did he see it? He didn't think it resembled a comet, therefore comets, therefore he didn't catalogue it, perhaps, who knows. Um, but you know, as amateurs and as friends, we used to then make up our own little lists of those things that potentially he missed. And I think Patrick, well, I know Patrick, we had that discussion as well, saying there's there's clearly emissions for whatever reason. So wouldn't it be fun to create your own list? So there were discussions at, at, at our local observatories as well as in Patrick's house of let's just write a list. And in fact, I did one. So I created one and I couldn't call it a a, a, a a list with uh, with Messier because that wouldn't work. So, you know, let's call it something else. So he got together a, and I, I specify the word list rather than a catalogue, and it was just a gathering, a list of his favourite objects that happened not to be Messier objects. And my understanding is that's exactly how it was meant to be. Nothing more than that. And yes, there were some more southerly Southern Hemisphere objects that, that Messier wouldn't have seen. It wasn't competing with him. It was more complementary to him. And there were some things that were perhaps a little bit fainter that would be harder to see or very hard to see unless you had larger instruments. But to Patrick, that wasn't the problem. The, what, the problem, the, the, the point was, was that it's just his list. It's just a list of objects that he liked, that he quite fancied. He bundled together, put it in an envelope and sent it to the US to Sky Telescope. And out of it came, as we know, um, a, a list, an official list, a catalogue, perhaps. Depends how you define it. I try to look at what's the difference between a list and a catalogue. It's quite a difficult thing to, you know, to get in your head. But to him, to Patrick, it was always a list. It was always a thing of for himself. It wasn't a serious thing. It wasn't meant to offend the Messier objects. It wasn't meant to, in any way, as was stated in that first paragraph in Sky and Telescope, I don't believe Patrick wrote that. And if he did write that, I think it was in jest. It's sort of saying, I'm trying to just open this up one moment. I'm sorry. It says here, uh, sites are shamefully neglected, quote unquote. That to me, knowing Patrick, was a joke. It wasn't that shame on Messier for missing these out. Therefore, I'm going to correct him in an arrogant way. It was more... Oh dear, look what he's done. This French person hasn't quite got it right. So I'm here to correct him. Ha ha. 
old style English humour, uh, perhaps. But I think if you don't didn't know him, and if you read that outright, you could very easily interpret that as a very arrogant stance and and be on your back foot and possibly not like where that's coming from. So and maybe then it gets not added. meant to be maybe not meant to be printed word for word, but a conversation. Yes, and if it was a correspondence conversation, as I believed it was, then it's just the written work that we have to interpret. If it was an interview, then it could have been perhaps interpreted in a different way. So I'm kind of going in his defense a little bit. Fair enough. Um, You know, I don't think, you know, he wasn't an angel and he upset a lot of people. And if you talk about politics and religion and, you know, he was, you know, he was quite um, quite strongly opinionated on that, and that's fine. But, but my kind of take on it was that it was in uh, all in good faith. Um, I actually picked up earlier this morning. I picked up the uh, Amira's book on the Messier objects. Messier didn't 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 actually um, discover all of those objects either. You know, so this wasn't a play on um, on discovering things. It was just a very humble list. So perhaps no different to a list that Alistair may put together or we might put together as amateurs to, um, you know, collect our favourite objects and then tick them off as we look. The only difference is, is that it had Patrick's name behind it and maybe that was taken advantage of by the, by the Patrick machine and, you know, put into, our, put into Shane's Nexus DSC. <laughs> um, you know, which I have as well, which is a fabulous bit of kit, and um, it drives my my uh, my eighteen inch as well. Um, or whether it's you know Stephen James O'Meara's book, um, it, it it's happened, it's there. Love it or lo- or loathe it, um, you know. In my view, life's too short. Um, it's a bit of fun, the hobby. Um, if you want to change the name or take Caldwell out and still go hunting those objects and tick them off. It's still an exercise to be done. Um, I'm pretty sure there was no hard feelings or any anything wrong in his creation of that list. That's my humble opinion. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, I, I'd sort of read um, there's been some online, there was online conversation just after it was published, which was around the time when I was getting into astronomy myself in, in the 90s. And I remember reading that and sort of thinking, huh, that's that's interesting. Still, though, I've you know bought the Amira book on it, and I, yeah. I've observed uh, not all, but many of the uh, targets in there. It, it's an interesting selection. I'll put it that way. Some yeah. of them are kind of tough, even yeah. some of the some of the early ones. Um, I agree, but yeah, I mean, like you said, it is it is a list, and I mean anything that kind of encourages people to to get out and observe. To be frank. When we had that conversation with with Alistair, and and a lot of it was sort of in in good spirit and good humor, um, I I kind of had hope that we would sort of hear from somebody and say, "Hey, I have a different opinion," and you know, I'm gonna I, I really would like to give you that opinion, or or you know, hopefully even somebody like yourself that that knew uh, uh, Patrick more, and then um, yeah, I kind of you know sort of enjoyed the fact that uh, you did reach out, and then we had that conversation and now you've, you've been on to kind of present uh, uh, that sort of al- alternative view, having known what Patrick words sound like uh, coming from uh, his mouth about uh, this topic. Anyway, really appreciate that. Stefan, do you have any uh, concluding remarks uh, before we wrap the show? 
I'd just like to sort of thank you both, uh, Chris and Shane, for for allowing me to come on the show and and rant about my my journey. Good. Um, it's uh, it's it's been a great pleasure to meet you. Um, it, it, I thoroughly enjoy your shows. Um, it, it it gives me uh, uh, you know it it, it helps to, um, to to keep the hobby uh, of mine going when when I'm busy doing other things. It kind of brings me back sometimes when we're in the summer and the nights are not long and. You know, so uh, you know that that's something in the background I really enjoy doing. Um, it has got me to spend some money, unfortunately, uh, because you know eyepieces are not cheap, not 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 as expensive as the one that you've recently bought, Chris. But um, but yeah, so it, the, the hobby is what it is. But we're we're a small community. Um, I love what we do. I love what you do. And please keep it up for us overseas. Um, we'll spread the word. Um, pleasure meeting you, and thank you for having me on the show. Anything to add from your end, Shane? Yeah, thanks, Stefan. Really enjoyed uh, getting to know you. Um, really enjoyed your journey and just your personal stories about Patrick Moore. Uh, I found very interesting. Um, one thing, too, that really uh, struck a chord with me was when you mentioned, uh, and you mentioned it a couple times, but in particular early on with the Astronomy Club, uh, feeling like a bit of an imposter. And I can certainly relate to that um, early on in my, you know, real telescope days joining a club, uh, the local club here, I just assumed you needed to know an awful lot about astronomy or have a university de degree in astronomy to, to sit at the table. Um, so it was quite intimidating for me to go to my first meeting but I quickly learned that, uh, you know, it's a very like-minded um, group of people that are very welcoming and, um, you know, in, in being able to share the hobby with others really amplifies the enjoyment, at least for me. And uh, uh, I'm just glad you mentioned that because I think probably more people to listening or others that are listening probably have had uh, a similar experience or, or maybe feeling that right now. And, and it's just a good thing to kind of acknowledge and and move on and and know that uh uh you know the only thing that really matters is looking up at the stars and and seeing some cool things and that's really what we're all about so thank you stefan it was a it was a great conversation thank you so true comments that's 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 hit the mark really hit the nail on the head with that i think and it's you know don't be fearful of it you don't have to have that degree and that knowledge just go out and learn and explore and have fun and and it is a community that's 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 sharing. It, it genuinely is. It's it's a great, great, great place to be. Well, thanks for that, Shane. Thanks, Stefan. And thank you to our listeners for listening. Please share the show with other stargazers you know. And if you want to send us your show ideas, observations, or questions, you can always reach us at actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>